0: The most dangerous lies are the ones we tell ourselves. And the most extreme example of this is, is Tommy Morrison, a native Kansas and who was a boxer and who actually became the heavyweight champion of the world. He even starred in Rocky Five, and his fame at that point in his life quickly spread. He was on late night talk shows and late night bars. He would always wanted to be famous, and he finally accomplished it, and he had the, the money, the women, and the drugs to back it up. But in 1996, everything came to a screeching halt. He was only two fights away from an intense bout with Mike Tyson when Tommy's manager told him he had failed a drug test. His lifestyle and his promiscuity had finally caught up to him. He found out he had contracted HIV. And initially, he stood before strangers, warning them about the dangers of unprotected sex. But after a while, he stopped. And there's no better way of saying it, but he created a whole new reality for himself. And a recent article in the Kansas City Star said this about Morrison. In this new reality, HIV doesn't exist. Or maybe it does, but it's not the killer the mainstream media think. Or maybe it is, but if so, he doesn't have it, never did, and that failed, cons- that failed test was a conspiracy carried out by rivals to get him out of boxing. Those spots on his arms and hands aren't the a- HIV symptoms of lesions, they're dog bites from his boxer puppy. Or mosquito bites, even if it's the middle of winter. He spoke with such conviction. And the rest of Tommy's life is a sad tale of exclusion and self-deception. That he would spend his days in chat rooms with other HIV deniers. And he would tell reporters of his unique skill to teleport out of bars. That he wanted so desperately to be liked and looked up to, he couldn't face reality. And this self-deception lasted until age 44 when reality finally hit and he died of AIDS. Sounds totally unbelievable and crazy, right? And yet we human beings have this incredible capacity to deny reality, right? To create stories, lies, to make reality more palatable to us. And granted, most of us won't concoct a world where we can teleport out of places or that we deny that we have HIV or a disease that we have. But that's precisely what makes his story so terrifying to me. He had no idea he was that self-deceived. Right, and that's the point of self-deception—the danger of it—that you can't see it. You're blind to it. But the most dangerous lies we tell ourselves are the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. All right, and even if you say, "Well, I don't lie to myself," right, Tommy would have said the same exact thing, and that's what makes it so self-deception so dangerous. Dr. Chris Thurman, in his book, The Lies We Believe, writes this about self-deception. The lies you tell yourself every day are killing you. The lies we believe are the mental bullets that kill our souls. And they inflict significant damage, often without our even realizing it until it's too late. That is scary to me when I hear that. And honestly, that, that's why Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians. They're self-deceived. That they're immature, they're fighting amongst one another, they're divisive, they're bickering, but they actually think they're really mature, that they've arrived, that they've created this other reality that, that does not exist. They think they're spiritual, uniquely blessed by God, and it's dangerous. It's destroying them. Paul sees it, and that's part of why he sat down to write this lengthy letter to them that they're deceived, they're telling themselves lies. And if we listen closely enough, I think you'll see that the lies they told themselves are lies we often tell ourselves, that their struggle is our struggle. And so what were the lies they told themselves? What, what's Paul unpacking here? I don't want to give it all away at the beginning, but, but the first lie is pretty obvious. We spent some time on it in the last couple of weeks, but it's a theme we have to keep hitting. It's the theme of 1 Corinthians in many ways from front to finish, which is this, this idea that, that I'm better, the self-superiority, the self righteousness that everyone thinks in this church at least thinks they're better than others and that's the weird boasting that we read about a few weeks back now in, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12 where they're all going around saying well I'm I follow Paul I follow P- Apollos I follow Cephas right and so our ears were thinking what what's going on there and, and the, the big idea is that they love social prestige power and influence and so they picked their favorite team their favorite teacher or leader and that was their that was their crew it was Paul Apollos or, or Cephas Whatever team that was, that they picked, that they joined, made them instantly better than all the other teams that were out there. And and What's going on? I mean, it's hard for us to know exactly what the, what's happening in this moment. But, but some commentators have suggested that behind this conflict is, is race, and that's why you have Apollos, Paul, and Cephas mentioned. That Apollos was chosen because he was Greek. So if you were Greek, you were on Apollos' team, and he, he exemplified that the Greeks were superior. And if you were Roman, you, you picked Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. If you were Jewish, you picked Cephas, which was Peter's uh, Peter the Apostle's Jewish name. Right, so whatever it was, whether it was class or race, it was just picking a team, picking a leader from which you follow and then which made you better than others. Now, I realize most of us in this room, we're not likely to be that bold. Right? We're good Americans. We keep our pride below the surface. Right? We wouldn't say I'm better to anyone out loud, but we, it shows up. At least it shows up in my life. Right, it shows up when a driver cuts me off and I get really angry Right, what's behind that really is I'm saying, I am the sort of driver who would never do what you just did. I'm so above that that I'm now mad at you because you've done something that no one should do. Right? I'm better. I mean, that's what's really going on there. Or it shows up when I, I refuse to forgive someone. Well, what I'm really saying in that moment is I, I'm incapable of the thing you did. I would never do that, and so I can't forgive you. What you did it's beyond the, beyond the pale. Right, I'm better. It shows up when I, I demand my way, when I'm obstinate before Others. This is What I'm really saying in that moment is, well, I'm smarter. You can't possibly have a better corner on truth or a better idea than me. I'm, I'm better. I'm smarter. Now, what are the subtle ways that you lie to yourself to say that you're better, more significant? Is it your politics? That your politics aren't just right, but your political opponents are, are evil? Or worst of all, this is something we see in the church all the time. In, in Corinthians, similarly here, we're having the same problem. That someone thinks they know the best way to do ministry or to do church. right? The exact kind of music that should happen. The exact way to do children's ministry. The exact translation of the Bible that should be used. Whatever it is, their preference, their love for something that's a good thing most likely becomes a point of division and contention and pride. It's not just that they have a preference. It's they're better than the people who don't have their preference. Are you seeing a little bit of yourself in this lie yet? If not, 1 Corinthians 3, it just, it lays out, it, the fruit of, of this lie in your life is clear. It's jealousy and strife. That's what's going on here in the Corinthians. My guess, if you are saying, well, I don't think there's ever a moment when I'm, I think I'm better than other people, my, I have a hunch that you probably have, there's some division going on in your life, whether it's at work, right, with your, your friends, your spouse, your kids. Now, pride always leads to division, that's what makes that lie so dangerous. And it's what's destroying this church here is that they think they're better than those who don't live up to their standards. And so that's the lie they live under. And, and Paul responds with a truth from God, which is that God expects you to grow. Which I know sounds like a weird response to that lie, but, but listen to what Paul says in verses 1, 3, through a, 3, 1, verses 1 through 3a, kind of the beginning of verse 3. This is what he writes. He says, but I... Brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And Paul's basic point in those first three verses is, you're, you're Christians, you have the Spirit of God, and yet you're living like you don't have the Spirit. Like you're just another person in this world, like you're not a Christian, like you, you haven't had any encounter with Jesus whatsoever. That they're living like the Spirit of God is not indwelling them. And Paul's word picture is really stunning here. He says, you're adults acting like babies. And as a guy with a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home, this, this illustration just comes home for me. I feel this. At this week, I was giving my older son, Isaiah, who's three years old, I was giving him a bath. And, and as we finished, it was time to dry him up. And uh, I had the Batman towel ready to go. And he started going nuts because he did not want to be dried off in his Batman towel. So he started screaming at me, right? I know Batman towel, no Batman. And I'm like, that's the only towel I got, so that's what we're using. So we're, I dried him off, throwing a tantrum. I, or my, my younger son Micah, he's one. He's in the stage now, the middle of the night. If he wakes up, he screams until he gets his pacifier or gets something to eat, right? And it's, it's not like, like, hey, could you guys get it? It's like screaming at the top. I've never heard a baby scream that loud, or maybe it's just because it's three in the morning, and that's just nothing should be that loud at three in the morning. Right? But that's perfectly normal for their age, right? I'm not saying, you guys need to grow up. I mean, maybe they do need to grow up a little bit. But I don't say that. They're three in one. Right? But imagine me acting like that, right? My wife hangs up a Batman towel, and I'm in the shower. And I'm like, hey, I want another towel. And she says, just use the Batman towel. And I just start screaming and crying at her, right? I'm not using the Batman towel. Not tonight. Right, or imagine in the middle of the night I wake up and, and my pacifier's not near me. I start screaming until she goes, and my, Misty goes and gets it. Right, it's ridiculous, and that's what Paul's point here is. You're Christians, and if you're a Christian, now let this this hurts, this hurts me at least. If you're a Christian, there should never be jealousy in your heart. Never envy, never strife. To do that is to act like the Spirit of God's not in you. Like you're a baby, like you're an infant in Christ. And so you and I, we should never be jealous, never cause strife. That God has given all of us his spirit to grow into something beyond what any of us can imagine. Something so grand, so great, it gives us no time to look at others and say, I'm better than you. I'm, I'm further along the road than you are. All right, that God didn't give you his spirit to moderately improve you, to make you a bit more tolerable, a little bit nicer, none of that. He gave you his spirit because he intends you to be, to turn you into a being that completely reflects, reflects his goodness, his kindness, his love, his grace, his holiness. And if that's true, if, we, if that's the vision we have in the future, we have no time to look at others and say, I'm better. God expects us to grow. Right, and the sort of redemption I'm speaking of, C.S. Lewis said it the best, and I'll probably use this quote every four weeks here. So if you don't, if you want to know where it's at, I'll use it again in four weeks. This is so good. Here's what Lewis writes. He says, For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce a better man of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. That's the picture of what God expects you and I to become. Not better sorts of men and women in this world, but a new creature all together. So it's worth asking, do you see that happening in your life if you're a Christian? Or could you more easily point out the people in your life that you're better than? I mean, that's what Paul is digging in with here. That's great. Paul's saying it's great that you you have all these gifts. God expects you to grow beyond where you're at now, and you're actually immature. And the most dangerous lies we tell are the ones we tell ourselves because they shield us from the reality. They blind us to where God is really pushing us, what he really has in store for us, and it gives us a reality that's false. So lie one says I'm better. God's response, Paul's response here is, well, God expects you to grow. You got a long way to go. Well, line number two, then, is, is my value is, is tied to what I do. And the Corinthians clearly thought that certain gifts, certain jobs were more important than others. And this will become clear later in the book, especially when we get into the spiritual gifts section. But, but one job they considered especially important was the job of, of teaching and preaching. That's why they were so enamored with Apollos. He was apparently a really great preacher. And we know from what Paul said here, as well as what's said of Apollos in the book of Acts, he was a really good teacher and preacher. right? But the Corinthians, what they did then was they said, well, you're a great preacher, and that's the most important gift. So you're the most important teacher. You're the most important person. And you and I, we do the same thing. right? We tie value, we tie significance to what we do. And the, most important ta- the more important of a task you do, the more important of a person You are, but Paul rejects that thinking, and he rejects it by using this metaphor of a field. Right in verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Did you catch that twice, only God gives the growth Right, that some Corinthians want to say, well, Paul, you're more important. You started the church, right? You were the entrepreneur. You got this thing going. Look where it's at now. Others were saying, Apollos, you're more important. You're the better teacher. You're the better preacher. And Paul's saying, none of that matters. We were just workers in a field. God gave us our job to do for the day, and we went out and we did it. It wasn't us. It's not about us. Our value is not tied to the job that we do. Our value, right, it should not come, you should not find your value in the work you do from day to day. Your value comes from who called you to go and do that work. The truth to that lie, and value is only tied to what I do, is is God has called you wherever you are. We so often deceive ourselves thinking that our value, our significance is found in what we do, not who called us to do what we do. And if we, we deceive ourselves into thinking our, our values tied to whatever our job is or our significance is equal to that which our task is, likely one of two things is going to happen. That first, you'll, you'll think your work is unimportant. You'll think the place of your contribution, whatever it is, Monday through Saturday or Sunday, whatever your contribution is, or here in the church, you'll think it doesn't matter. It's not important. And maybe that's where you are. Right now, just, work is frustrating. Or here, even in church, you, you want to volunteer somewhere else or you want to be involved in something else. You're, just, you're frustrated. You feel like you're not, you're not giving any value. And I would just call you away from thinking your value is tied to your task. It's not. It's called to the God who has called you to do whatever it is you're doing. That God has called you to wherever you are now. He brought you there. and He intends for you to play a part in that place. All right, That's why Paul says he and Apollos, they were assigned by God to wherever they are. All right, unless you think God just takes naps and loses control every now and then and you end up in places he didn't see coming. Wherever you're at in this moment, God saw it coming and he has you there for a reason. That God has called you wherever you are. And it, wherever you are, if he's called you there, it may not be fun. It may not be what you want to do. Other people may look at it and say it's not important. But if God's assigned you there, it is significant. It is important. The value is tied because he's put you there. But secondly, God has called you to use you. That's the beauty of the farming imagery, that no one does it all. Everyone has a part to play. And this is true both at work and at church. It's true at work that Martin Luther had a great thing where he said that the best work you can give or the best way to love your neighbor is to do really good work. And you may say, but Tim, my job is really terrible. I have an awful job. And I can say, look, I can relate. Before I came... Here to, 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 to Christ Community, I was in Chicago, and when I was in seminary, I had a job at Starbucks, and there were days I did not want to go into work. And yet, over time, God made it clear that was the place he called me to love my neighbor for that season of my life. Right? And at days, it was just the, the offhanded conversation that I had, just being in the right spot. God had me in the moment for a conversation. Or at other times, it, it, just the fact that, that p- some people without coffee are really terrible human beings, Right? And I made them and I gave them coffee and then they became really beautiful, wonderful human beings. Right? Loving my neighbor it was just another way. Doing really good work. And wherever God has you, he's called you there to, to, to play your parts. He's assigned you. And no one can do everything. Everyone has their part to play and God has put you there to play it. And that's true if you're here at, or it's true here at, at church as well. I know some of you right now, you're doing things you would never have done in a church, except for the fact we're brand new and we're just, we had to beg you, right? And we had maybe threatened your salvation or something. I don't know if anyone did that, but hopefully not. Um, but we, we had to beg you, right? Please do this. We, we need help, all the help we can get. And that, honestly, that's been a part of my favorite part of this conversation or this thing, is, is watching God use people doing things they would never have otherwise done. And slowly I could see God put together a church where he uses everyone, Some to sow, some to plant, some to water, some to hold a door open, some to hold a baby, some to set a stage up, some to set children's ministry up. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. God's called you to that piece, and that part that you play is how God uses to give growth to his church. Don't think your value is tied to the job that you do. It's not. It's a tie to the God who has assigned you to the task and the place you're in. And so the first mistake you might make if you think your value is tied to your work is that you'll you'll think your job is not that important. You think your work's not that important. The other mistake you'll you'll think if you tie your value to your work is that your job or that you are, are too important. All right, that's the Corinthians problem here. It's the problem of, of many Christians. Right? And we all need to hear there's no job that any one of us can do that God can't assign someone else to. And at some point, whatever you're doing right now, God is going to assign someone else to. We're all transient. God has a replacement for you coming down the road. And the only person important in this place is Jesus, the one who assigns us, the one who we are here to worship and gather around. None of us are more important than the other. We are all here working and plowing, sowing, watering, building this field, hoping God will give us some growth, that people will meet Jesus, be encouraged, and that this place will grow and flourish. But that's on God. God assigns a task. It's not on you to do really what you consider to be really important work. And the most dangerous lies are the ones we tell ourselves. But God's truth in this space counters by saying what matters is not what you do, but who has called you to what you do. That's where Paul lands this metaphor in verse 9 when he says, for we are are God's fellow workers. And it's not a great translation there. Literally it says, for we belong to God. We are God's. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of, of our value, our significance. That God could assign me to anything. To suffer, to do a job I don't want to do, to do a job I really love to do. And none of it matters. What matters is I belong to him. I'm his. Belonging to Christ. So lie one, I'm better. Lie two, my value is tied to what I do. The third lie the Corinthians are sort of self-deceived with. I confess, it's the most intense. And basically the lie is, I, I framed it, I can do whatever. And, and I think what, I'm, what I mean there is that, that really the Corinthians are living as if there aren't consequences to their actions. That they're blind to the consequences of how they're living in the church and what they're doing. Right, That Paul uses or, or brings out this point by using the metaphor of a house. And so if you build a house, the foundation's really important. What, what you use to build the house is really important as right, someone, my wife and I were in the process of looking for a house. We think we found the right one. We've made an offer on it. And now the process is, do they build that thing right? right? Is, it gonna, you know, is the wind going to blow and it falls on us five years from now? I mean, is it built with good, a good foundation, good materials? And that's what Paul is saying here when he speaks of the church as a house. At the Corinthians, they were building on that foundation. They were building a house. And Paul's saying, you're building with terrible materials. And so the same question would be for us today is, what? Here in the church, in this context, what are you building with? The foundation you and I are supposed to build on, it's clear. It's Christ crucified. And that's everything Paul has been preaching here in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the one thing we have as the church. And so the question from there then, okay, what are you building on that foundation with? And Paul says you can build in one of two ways. You can build with gold, precious stones, or you can build with wood, hay, and straw. Now how in you and I, how we serve the church, it matters. How we live our lives from Monday to Sunday, from Monday to Saturday, it, it matters. There are consequences to how we build our lives. It will either, right, in on the one hand, be withstand the day of judgment, as Paul talks about. When God's judgment comes, your work will be shown to be beautiful and pure and good, and it will last into eternity, which is one of the things we should really take away from the, the, the amazing truth of this. Like, that God's not just going to burn up the earth and then beam us up to heaven. Everything good and lasting and, and built on Christ you do in this world, Paul is saying, in some sense, last into eternity. Every contribution you make that's built on Christ crucified lasts unless you build with wood, hay, and straw. And if, th- if that happens, right, if that's the way that you build, Paul says, it's all going to burn up. And you're still going to be saved, right? If you're a Christian, you don't lose your salvation just because you, you messed everything up. But you're going to be saved like, like God's going to have to run into a burning building and pull you out last second. And that's the metaphor. That's the image Paul gives. And that's the counteractive truth to, to the lie of I can do whatever. There are no consequences. Right? It's God will be the judge. God will judge how I built my life, how I contributed, what my contribution was, what the materials I built with were. That you and I, we cannot live however we want. That our lives have consequences. Our actions have consequences. And what you give to this place, to your workplace, to your family, it will either last into eternity and be proven to be beautiful and wonderful and good if it's built on Christ. Or it will all burn up because it was built with wood, hay, and straw. So what are you building with? And I know I wish there was an easy way to say, well, this is how you know you're building with, you know, gold and not wood. And I tried. I I just I didn't have any great answers. And, And the only next step I can give you to think through that is to ask ask this question, and that is, how much is the cross defining your daily life, your work, in your family, at church, with your friends? How much does the cross define your your life? How much does the cross speak into how you go to work, how you raise your kids? How you treat your friends. That's the only only question I can think of to help you sort through that. Because Paul's whole point is either you're building on the foundation of Christ or you're not. And the cross is to speak into all of our lives, not just small parts. And then after this then moment, Paul gets pretty intense. It's very intense, actually. It's sort of honestly, this this text in some ways, this this week and next week, especially as a pastor, freaked me out. um, just being real. In verse 16 especially, he asked them this question. He says, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? The Corinthians would have heard this and would have been stunned because in that day, they had really big temples in Corinth that were to other gods. In fact, some of those temples, parts of them still stand today. They were so big, so huge. And when Paul looks at them and says, you are God's temple. Forget about all those other amazing buildings. right? You are God's temple. God's dwelling in your midst. That what you're doing in that place, in the church, it matters. God's dwelling among you. So when you fight and you divide, you're doing it in the presence of God. And that's why this text. That's why it terrifies me. So what we're doing in this in this space at this campus of Christ Community is not it's not a social club, right? It's not, I didn't need more friends, and I felt really lonely, and I hoped you'd all come. It's that's not what we're doing, right? It's not a motivational speaking time where we hope we all feel a little bit better better about ourselves and go out and and. Go into the world. Now, this this is the place where God dwells amongst us, right? Yes, us in this ugly gym, right, this weird space. God amongst us, this people. We're trying to build another place where God's presence is real. Now, Paul's point is we as a church, we're holy people. That's why he ushers the warning he does in verse 17, that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. The Corinthians are filled with division, and and verse 17 reveals how much God hates division, that he'll destroy whoever will destroy God's church with division. That God's church matters to him that much. His church should matter to us that much. That we treat one another, this place, right, not physical location, this place, us gathered with a reverence. Treat one another with a humility. How could you and I ever fight or divide? We're the place where God dwells. What more do we need? How could we ever fall for any self-deceiving lies? Like I'm better, or that my value is tied to my work. I'm the, the place with you where God dwells. How could I ever think that, that there's anything better than this place? And that changes the way I look, right, at my job. Changes the way I look at myself. The most dangerous lies we tell are the ones we tell ourselves because they, they, they shield us from true reality. And that's where Paul ends this chapter. Right? And when he says, when, when all are yours, verse 22, when all are yours, this, this world, life, death, the present, the future, all of it's yours. What he's saying there is he's listing all of the things that, 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 that get us down in this life. Right? I mean, that's the reason we have to lie to ourselves is because we live in a deeply broken place, a place that we need a new reality. That's why we create one for ourselves Sometime Either we mess ourselves up or others mess us up. And we need a new reality. We want a new reality. And Paul's saying, you have it in Christ. You have a new reality. Stop deceiving yourself. That's what he's driving at with these words. This world, life, death, present, future. That those are the things that, that wear us down in this world. One of the most vivid memories I have is, is a new dad. The first day Isaiah was born was I I put so much prayer and effort into just him being born and and, and the birthing process, right? I mean, just he's there, he's healthy. And I thought at that point I'd experienced some relief, but I didn't. I just freaked out even more, right? Because I I began thinking through just all the many ways this world can and most likely will hurt him. I I will do my best, but I can't protect him from everything. And that's Paul's point here is that, that whatever can get to you in this life, at this world, I mean, you just name, I mean, we have we have our lists. Right? This life, our death, the present, whatever troubles you, you brought in here this morning, the future, whatever troubles lie ahead of us. If you're in Christ, all of that's irrelevant. You have a new reality in, in Jesus that none of those things can stop who you are in Christ. So Paul says to them stop deceiving yourself you're Christ. Christ was crucified for you. That's not some beginning truth into Christianity. That's the whole truth from A to Z, that Christ, you're Christ, and he gave all of himself to you. And that truth plants you in reality, keeps you from self-deception, that you're Christ and no one else's. And that that good news is the only thing that will peel us back from the lives you and I tell ourselves that that truth is the only beautiful, solid, lasting truth that you and I will encounter in this world, that you are Christ's, and nothing, not this world, not your life, not your death, not the present, not the future, can say anything or take anything from you, for Christ has conquered all of these things, and you are Christ's. Let's pray. God, I say that, and it's true, and I believe it, but, Lord, so much of it is is just not deep enough into my heart that I am yours, I am Christ's. So, God, I ask now, as we worship, as we sing, in a moment, in a few minutes, as we take communion, God, you would impress upon our hearts that we are yours. That's the one truth we need to live by, and we can leave the lies that we're telling ourselves behind, knowing, God, that we are yours. We are Christ's, and in that we have conquered all things. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.